Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, and I'm really pleased to have back on the show Christopher Rufo, Senior Fellow at Manhattan Institute, former filmmaker, um, I think now current filmmaker, once again, um, <laughs> author of the book that we're going to be talking about, America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. Um, I, I would add to your, your biography, your formal biography, probably the most successful conservative activist in a generation. And for me, and I think for many other people, a walking white pill when we want to be uh, just just too depressed about the state of the regime. Um, Chris Rufo is in, in, in the business of handing us W's and, and upping our spirits. So uh, thanks very much for coming back on High Noon. It's good to be with you. Um, so this, this book feels very much like the manual or the like intellectual architecture behind why you choose the targets you do as an activist, how you think about the, the, I guess, nonviolent war that we are waging, the Cold War that we're waging, um, both in like describing how the regime actually works, how it got there. This is sort of a, a woke origin story book, um, but, it, but it's a very uh, intellectual one, right? You, you talk about really the history of ideas here and each, each section of your book starts with um, essentially an academic or activist on, on the left that you think has, still has a lot of purchase today, whose ideas have a lot of purchase today. Um, there are a lot of these wokeness origin stories, uh, that seem to be coming out from smart people, not, not all in book form, but some of them in book form, right? So you have this one from you, um, who, that focuses on the intellectual history. Um, you have sort of the Caldwell and Richard Hanania, um, sort of origin story of wokeness that, that focuses really on the civil rights movement, the civil rights act. Um, there's, there's the James Burnham managerial revolution, economic interpretation, of how to think about where we are. I think folks like Daryl E. Paul also talk about sort of the economic and managerial transformation. So what is the best way, <laughs> all of that to say, what is the best way to think about the origin of wokeness and the system that we live under? Because these aren't necessarily uh, I, visions that are in contradiction with each other, but how, why is it that you chose to tell the intellectual story here? Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I happen to agree with, with all of those points of view, and I think that they're all um, taking different angles of observation on the same phenomenon. And so I don't look at them as in tension or in conflict, although to a certain extent that's inevitable. Um, uh, but I actually look at them as very much complementary. We're all looking at the same patterns and trends and observations of the world around us and say, you know, where does this come from? And, and so... That said, I think, of course, my, my, uh, my origin story is the best. Uh, I think it's the most comprehensive. I think it's the most fruitful. But, but what I really try to do is to really understand this movement first as it understands itself over time, beginning in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and then tracing it over time. And, and the story that I tell is not just a story of pure intellectual history that's abstract in nature, but it's a story of how these ideas gained power. So it's an actual practical analysis of how these ideas entered institutions and became the default ideology of the institutions with this process culminating in the summer of 2020, the summer of George Floyd. And so I think that, look, ideas do matter. Um, uh, institutions matter, law matters, incentives matter. That's true. But I think all of those are, in a very important way, derivative of ideas. Well, the law, before it's written, is an idea. The institutions, um, are operate, they operate on a set of values and ideas. Um, you know, the, the, the civil rights bureaucracy, which is, of course, important and part of the book, 
um, comes from a very um, distinctive and very specific set of ideas that animate the civil rights bureaucracy before it becomes policy, law, custom, habit, etc. So what I hope the book does for the reader is give them a great understanding of what's happening today and where it comes from. Um, and certainly, I, I mean, I, would, I think a, a great panel would be to have all of those folks that you mentioned um, you know, talking together. And, and I, I imagine that in 95% of the time, we would be in, in, in violent agreement. Um, there, there is a point of disagreement, though, not among the people that I just listed, really, although some of them may be. Um, so you're, you're taking, as far as I can tell, if, if you were to give a shorthand for when America, quote unquote, turned, made a wrong turn in your estimation of our history and our intellectual history, right? Um, I think it would be 1968. You think that's fair to say? Yep. So one point of disagreement on the right recently has been how far back does this go? And to some extent, this is a fool's errand, right? Because every intellectual movement has some ties uh, to what came before it. I mean, you can connect everything going all the way back to Adam and Eve, if you'd like. Um, but, but so you really firmly say, okay, something fundamentally changed in the American project in the 1960s. Whereas some folks on the, you know, the post-liberal right or um, other aspects of, of the right have put it further and further back, right? Some people put it um, in 1964 rather than 1968. Some people in the Civil War, some people in the origin, the 1776 origin of America, right? And some people all the way back, you know, we, we took a wrong turn with the Enlightenment, right? Um, and, yeah, and fundamentally, yeah, yeah. this is working out of, of an, uh, errors in thinking that came through the Enlightenment. Um, what, what is this the strongest case, other than having folks read the whole book, but just in a, a tasty little bite here um, to encourage them to read the longer argument, what is the case for 1968 being pivotal in... in the way or the trajectory of this country, the intellectual trajectory of this country. Yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I like all these debates. I think that they're all instructive in their own way. But when you're writing a book and the, the first decision that you have to make is, well, what are the, the bookends uh, of your book? And what, are the, what is the time period that you're going to really focus on? And I wanted it to be um, uh, something that, was, that felt uh, current, that felt relevant, that felt fresh from page one to, you know, to the final page. And you have to choose and delimit your, your field of research. And so I thought that um, really the two bookends are 1968 and 2020. And the argument that I make is that we're, in, in a sense, in a loop in 1968. The policies, the figures, the ideas, the concepts, the language, everything that we saw in 2020 with BLM and that summer of BLM was already developed in, in, in its fullest form in 1968, with the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army, the Weather Underground, the New Left, intellectuals in the universities. And, and so to me, that is a, 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 a you, you can actually go pretty deep in the history that over that 50 odd year time horizon. But also 1968, the summer of these, the, the massive riots um, in, in 2020, the summer, the, the summer of the massive riots that was the only one bigger than 1968 uh, since that time. And so it gave a really natural set of constraints. But also, and this is where I think I might disagree with, with, with some of our colleagues and friends, you know, they paint 1968 as an inevitable outgrowth of 1964. I, I don't think that that's true. I actually don't think that that's true at all. I think that that's a pretty weak argument. 
And actually, 1968 is very surprising in light of 1964. In 1964, you have, and 65 with the Voting Rights Act, you have full legal equality for the first time in the country's history. Um, I, I think that that is a, 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 an accomplishment. I think that that is something um, that, that was a gradually unfolding process that reached its uh, kind of culminating moment. And it's actually surprising and not inevitable that in 1968, just five years after that, you would get this total change in attitude, this, this, this eruption of violence, this demand for revolution, um, in light of having achieved this full equal rights. And so the relationship between those two dates is really uh, important. It's really important to understand, but I would even just as a symbol, and I think that uh, many people uh, can, can visualize this, if you look at the March on Washington and you look at the, the images of the uh, civil rights protesters, it is uh, you know, people, obviously predominantly African-Americans, but really people of all different racial backgrounds. People are dressed in their Sunday best. The, the, the signs and the, and the symbolism that they're, that they're, that they're advertising um, are optimistic, they're hopeful, they're demanding equal treatment. Um, but, but just the, the, the attitude, the feeling, the aesthetics, it's, it's, it's people that are, you know, kind of 35, 40, 50 people with families. They're, they're, they're bringing their families in some cases. It's a very wholesome image uh, in some ways, those photographs. Contrast that with 1968, and it, 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 and it is completely different. Um, the, the imagery is different. The attitude is different. The demographics are different. The messaging is different. And and very much the same as we see in 2020. Those two things are, are interchangeable visually and aesthetically. I mean, the, the colors and the, the automobiles and the, and the film processing, you know, you know take that aside. But, 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 and, and so the question is, well, how do we get from this, you know, 64 to 68? And, and, um, and that could be a book in itself. I think it would be a really fruitful study. But I, I'm not convinced that 1968 and 2020 are inevitable outgrowths of 1964. Uh, maybe you disagree. I'd be curious to see what you think. I, I've always actually, I think, um, more leaned in your direction on this, in part because I think some of the, the folks who I think have been really incisive, and Richard and uh, Christopher Caldwell, and, and I think there is something to the idea. I think their underlying sort of intellectual framework is, well, when we granted full equality under the law and it didn't solve, quote unquote, inequality, Right. That essentially yeah, it yeah. would inevitably lead. And I think there's something psychologically to that. And I think it, it was um, best summed up. Actually, somebody when I back when I was in FedSoc in law school, uh, one of my professors said he used to go around debating affirmative action, like the legal architecture. Right. Um, affirmative action with professors on the left. And he said one of the professors that he debated very openly said, and, you know, this is the 90s to a public audience said, uh, look, I think we ought to give affirmative action another few decades before we conclude that these racial disparities are genetic. Like those were the only two options for the way that he thought about it. Right. So I can see the the psychological mechanism that that might be true. But one huge gap to me um, in this architecture is that it seems like it, it overemphasizes the admittedly very fraught relationship with black Americans and their country that, that has been fraught from the beginning. Um, that's one piece of the story to me, but like leaving out, for example, the sexual revolution as 
kind of it almost doesn't have a place in Caldwell's view of how we got here. And it has such a central place in the way I look at it or the the policing crime and drugs revolutions of the 70s, all of these cultural revolutions, the falling away from religion. It seems to me that those are all interconnected, but independent from the racial aspect of this. And it's not that there were no overlapping sort of sinews between those two things, but the racial discussion, and I shouldn't even say racial discussion because that's too broad, actually, the specific relationship of black Americans with this country seems to me to be a topic deserving of splitting out on its own um, in terms of its importance and longevity in this country. Whereas the rest of this cauldron, I very much seem agree with you, seems to come about in the late 60s. Um, and, and even though it has some, some tangential connections, and certainly I think you write about the Black Panthers, right? There is an overlap here. Um, but it, it's not clear to me that these are like identical, right? That there, there may be a Venn diagram overlap, but it seems to me fundamentally that these are two separate questions. Yeah, and, and look at the, the, the rhetoric and the, of the time and then the rhetoric, subsequent rhetoric. Um, you know, the, the, the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army um, were not the same people as the civil rights marchers. I mean, these were totally distinct and opposed political factions. And, you know, my, one of my early po- mentors in politics, a gentleman by the name of Bruce Chapman, was a you know, conservative Republican, you know, Harvard graduate, you know, worked in the Reagan administration. You know, but, but, he, but, you know, he marched in, in, in the March on Washington. He, he was, uh, you know, supportive of the civil, uh, civil rights um, uh, march, uh, kind of activism of the time. Um, it was a pretty broad coalition. It was a kind of wholesome coalition. It was people, I think, fighting for noble principles. And I think Caldwell and, 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 and Hanania are right in the sense that it created a bureaucracy that enabled uh, people to come in and hijack it and then use it to achieve um, the unfair ends. I, mean, I think there's, there's a lot to that, right? That is, I think that is certainly the case. And then, well, you know, we achieved full legal equality and then immediately... You know, Lyndon Johnson also uh, uh, signs an executive order mandating affirmative action. So it was this momentary equality that then overshot with this large bureaucracy, the, 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 the mandate for affirmative action, et cetera. I think there's a lot there, and I think that's, that's generally true. Um, but but I, I, I just still, at the end of the day, I'm unconvinced of this thesis that, you know, that somehow the, the whole time the Civil Rights Act was a, a Trojan horse and it's enabled the country um, to, to, to go in this awful direction that's created two competing constitutions. I, I, think, that, I think it's overblown. And, and, and I think we actually, I, I think that argument is it doesn't hold water. It doesn't uh, uh, follow the kind of uh, hold up under close scrutiny. Um, and, and, and I think that the question that you have is actually much more instructive. It's how can you explain continued, now decades-long, racial inequality in light of the Civil Rights Act granting full uh, legal equality regardless of race? That's a very difficult and complex question. Um, the left has a very easy answer for it, um, which I think is not true. The right has a number of competing answers for it, um, all of which are you know, fairly uncomfortable to make, and some of which are, you know, taboo. And so I think that we can untangle those two questions. 
you know, what's the nature of the civil rights law and bureaucracy? Has it overstepped? Has it enabled kind of DEI-style discrimination that is against the principles of the Declaration, the 14th Amendment, maybe even the 64th Civil Rights Act itself? And then the broader sociological, political, philosophical question of, you know, how does a society justify inequality, group inequality? Um, Or is it always unacceptable and therefore justifies um, more strenuous and more vigorous intervention? Those those are questions that haven't been answered. Yeah, Yeah, I'll tell you how uh, I frame it, and you can tell me whether you you agree or or disagree with some aspect of it. But I actually think of it very similarly as I think about the progressive era versus the 1968 leftism that you've written about in this book, right? Which is, you know, the Wilsonian administrative state fully enabled, like the structure of it provided the template for the powers that were then seized by radicals that the progressives of 1920 would not have recognized in certain ways, not least because they had no pretensions to racial equality, right? Quite the opposite. Um, but, but it would have been much less successful for those activists to seize the levers of power if there hadn't been this expansion of the architecture of the state, um, versus now we have that same architecture being weaponized by sort of a woke deep state that has very radical views in, in some way, I think you can think of the civil rights act the same way, uh, that, it, it provided an architecture. It was an extraordinary solution in a certain sense. And in the constitutional sense, it was an extraordinary solution. This is the biggest incursion into American uh, freedom of association, among other things. Right. Um, and it was a an extraordinary solution. And I think quite like the way that the 14th Amendment revolutionized our Constitution in a certain way. It was an extraordinary solution aimed at a problem that had been intractable in American society in a variety of ways and really had uh, very much, I know some people on the right don't like this, but this phrasing, but like very much had been the Achilles heel of the American project um, from the beginning and had had introduced to note, this is why so many of the founders were so sorrowful about Contra the like, you know, BS narrative of the left, right? They were so sorrowful about bringing the country into an existence under under the declaration with slavery and the overwhelming majority of the serious founding fathers whose names we know today opposed slavery. Um, It doesn't mean they were revolutionaries in abolishing it, but it it, it seems like um, we have done a series of extraordinary solutions or interventions trying to solve this problem, the biggest of which was the mass bloodletting of the Civil War. Um, Now, however, that problem, if it is resolvable, if it's not resolvable in American life, it seems like it has provided the architecture. Some of those solutions have provided architecture, but I still I still fundamentally see the impulse as something different. And in fact, I could see America you know, carrying the wound of this problem, the specific uh, um, racial divide between black Americans and the rest of, of America um, and and trying in successive ways to solve that problem without the rest of this happening. And on the flip side, I could see a cultural revolution happening that actually had little or nothing to do with the racial element in America. Because, because there are other vulnerable points or kind of weaknesses that that could be exploited in, in, in the interest of a cultural revolution? 
Yeah, I mean, look, the, the Cultural Revolution, it seems like in, in some sense, we don't want to talk about how extraordinary the problem specifically that Black Americans have had with America is. And the left has been very, very good at replicating it first to other racial groups, right? I know um, Mike Gonzalez, who you, you work a lot with and, and talk a lot with, um, his book obviously lays out how that particularized experience was then sort of copy pasted by activists trying to attempt to create racial groups to treat Hispanics the same way, to treat you know AAPI, which is completely ridiculous. Now there'll be Mina, right? Throwing people in from radically disparate parts of the world and completely different cultural experiences in America into these categories, but it provided the template. So I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm um, rambling a bit, but I, I, I do see some of the connections that folks like Caldwell say but I think yeah, they're yeah. not as inevitable. That's where I agree with you. I see some of the like sinews connecting this stuff and certainly it uses the same powers that were granted in sort of special dispensation um, to try to solve this one racial problem in America. That being said, they're sinews. They're not like the, the beating heart of each thing to me seems fundamentally separate. Yeah, and, and I think too, it's quite interesting because we talk about the Civil Rights Act a lot. Obviously, that's the subject of, 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 of the kind of origin story for these books. But the Great Society, uh, which, was, which, was, which was developed and, and implemented and began implementation that same year, was also, in a sense, a social justice project. It was a project that sought to create material racial equality between groups as it was disproportionately targeting you know, inner city communities and inner city black communities in its programs and projects. So, so there was an idealistic and aspirational vision at that time to say with the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, we want to have full legal equality. And then with the Great Society programs, the, the, the welfare state programs, we want to um, provide the tangible and material training, benefits, housing, medical care, education, and, and every other sort of, of, of social scientific method of uplift to get those communities that have been suffering from racial discrimination but also uh, uh, material inequality to get them up to parity with other groups. Both have failed. I, I, and, that, that, and that's the context that we need to see 2020 in. Um, both of those ideas had, had 50 years um, to, to, to manifest. 50 years to, to implement, 50 years to, to, to develop and, and, and iterate upon. And neither the Great Society programs um, uh, uh, nor the, f- the equality of the civil rights plus some of the actual positive discriminatory, uh, uh, if we take the kind of anti-racist terminology, um, that, that didn't work either. And so you have neither of these great projects beginning with LBJ in 64 yielding their desired outcomes, and in some measures actually making them much worse. So we have a, a big conundrum. There's a big open question on, on if, unless we can resolve this question or find even a satisfactory answer toward it. Um, I do feel like there's an inevitable sense that these easy solutions from the new left, from BLM, from the Black Panthers will always reemerge because whatever their flaws are, whatever their consequences are, which are negative across the board, at least they're attempting to answer the, the, the question that's been posed that, that, that so far has not been answered. Yeah, I mean, so I guess 
my next question would be, do you think that there's, and here again is where I sort of split from the pure Civil Rights Act explanation for this. It seems to me there is a fundamental question of modernity as well involved in this, right? Um, that that there are certain existential questions. And you start, you're saying, I think, not just that these solutions on the left have failed to create material outcomes for their adherents that are better, but they've also failed in some way to answer something more fundamental about what it is to be a citizen or even what it is to be a human being. So, you know, I, I guess the the pessimistic question I would have for you is, why do you think that this can't go on forever? Or not forever, I shouldn't say, but, you know, the Soviet Union lasted 80 years. America is much more um, uh, prosperous or richer than the Soviet Union was when they began this project. And we'll talk in a minute the differences between these two projects. But it, it seems to me like, yes, on the long scale, everything that must come to an end and has such contradictions and fails to actually explain much of the world to its adherents um, will come to an end. But why, why are you optimistic that it'll come to an end in the next 10 or 20 years versus the next 200? Well, um, I think because at the end of the day, as I, as I did the research for this book, a couple, a couple big lessons were revealed. And one is that we, we've defeated this ideology before. The New Left, the Panthers, the BLA, the Weather Underground, that whole method of violent, radical, Marxist-Leninist armed revolution was obliterated, totally shattered by 1972. So from 1968 to 1972, you get all of these groups riding high, believing that they could, I mean, they actually had a genuine belief. You can, you can see this. I, I saw this over and over as I was studying their, their propaganda and their, their materials, their papers. They believed that they had a chance at sparking grassroots, third-world-style liberation armies to take over the United States, to assassinate their opponents, and then to install themselves as the revolutionary government. And then by 1972... Richard Nixon wins 49 states in the largest electoral landslide ever since. And so the country can actually shift very fast. Um, um, uh, it can have a return to normalcy um, that, that, that occurs rapidly after some of these uh, you know, violent spasms or changes. And then you had a long period of time in which these ideologies didn't have any traction outside of the fringes, outside of the faculty lounges, outside of some kind of communes down in uh, you know, Topanga Canyon or wherever. Um, and then they come back to, to, to prominence in 2020. I think it felt as if they were truly dominant at that time, e even coercively uh, like required at that time. But we've already seen through... Um, some of the activism, some of the intellectual work, some of the natural kind of swinging of the pendulum. There's already cracks in that hold. And what felt dominant in 2020 has started to feel more tenuous um, in 2023. And in fact, um, something like a BLM has gone through the same process that the Black Panthers had gone through at that time. 
they have no responsible leadership, they have no uh, message that can maintain uh, legitimacy in, in, within, with the larger public, and outside of in force, intimidation, and kind of media propaganda, um, their deeper ideas um, crumble when, when challenged in, a, in an open environment. And so what happens is they loot the organization, they pull out all the money, they kind of they decamp to their, to their mansions or whatever, um, and, and then the movement suffers these big setbacks. So I, I think that right now is the time for offense. And I actually think that you, of course, have to understand the history of America's cultural revolution in order to, to, to think intelligently about it and figure out how to defeat it. But um, I, I think we have an enormous window of opportunity right now. Um, and I actually think that we can push these folks back much further um, than, than, in, than recent history might suggest. And I think that we're exposing and fighting these kind of tactical fights that reveal the weakness of this ideology. And though, even though the subtitle of the book is, of course, how the radical left conquered everything in a cultural sense, um, it, it doesn't mean that that's inevitable. It doesn't mean that that's irreversible. And it doesn't mean that they're untouchable. Um, but actually, the opposite is true. They're, they're like an army that has extended um, too far uh, from their position of strength, too far from their, their center defenses. And, and we have them very spread out. And I think now is the time to start really um, aggressively attacking. And, and, and we can see some, some, some significant victories in, in the coming years. So I guess I have two short follow-up questions to that. One is how much of this is a question of competence? Um, and in this case, I'm for once not talking about the right, but the left, uh, that this ideology that perhaps one of its greatest weaknesses is that it's unable to select for competence in a certain sense. And two, I guess the, the more black pill question would be a lot of your strategy, I think, it's a very like Aristotelian mixed strategy in a certain sense, because you're, you're on one hand talking about power from below from the demos, right? And you continually cite the fact that actually the basic principles of, for example, colorblindness is enormously popular um, with voters, right? Um, but, but you also obviously are very sophisticated in how you implement and what levers to push, what, you know, um, you know, how to actually implement this in a way that, that does actually hit at, the power that the left is using. Um, why are you optimistic that they will quote unquote, let us win? Because watching not just 2020, which really did feel like a cultural revolution, right? Regime change is what it felt like. Um, and then if you combine that with the way that the administrative state and other sort of institutional forces in American life treated the Trump presidency for four years, breaking all kinds of the most important quote unquote norms, right. Of, of a democratic Republic um, in order to make sure that this guy that they didn't like and didn't agree with them, didn't get into, you know, wasn't able to rightfully exercise the powers of his elected office. You know, why are you certain that that's, or not certain, I guess no one's certain, but um, why are you optimistic that this won't be this moment where the, the grip seems to be more brittle and there does seem to be more of a cracks coming through. I mean, it seems like there's a lot of, of authoritarian regimes where it goes the other way. When, when, when that power becomes brittle and exposed, 
it tips the other way into like a more overt authoritarianism. Well, I, I, I mean, I think that it, if it does tip that way, Americans will uh, mobilize against it and it will become even more clear to even more people. But um, I, I think that the, the phrase that you used struck me as something very important. You said, well, what makes you think that they will let us win? Um, and and, and I, I just think that conservatives spend too much uh, uh, time thinking in those terms. And so they end up, you know, it's almost like you're, you're asking uh, for victory. You're, you're saying, hey, will you concede to, to my victory? Or, you know, will, will you let, it's like you're playing you know, basketball with your older brother who's, you know, a foot taller than you. And you say, hey, you know, can you let me win? Um, but, but this isn't a family relationship. These are, these are not people that are, have your best interest at heart. Um, you have to win by winning, not by asking, not by, not by positioning yourself to persuade uh, the other side. Um, and, and I think that conservatives, in a very real way, do not have the self-confidence to say that this is my position, it is the moral position, it's the position that represents the, major- the democratic majority in this country, and therefore this position will become law. And, and those who uh, uh, would violate it are now in violation of the law. And so for something like uh, affirmative action, um, you know, affirmative action is unjust, you know, definitionally. Uh, affirmative action is unpopular by any measure of public polling. And conservatives could tomorrow, uh, at the state legislatures, you know, literally tomorrow, could say, no more affirmative action of any kind, any racial preferences is a violation of law, and companies or individuals or institutions that practice uh, this kind of discrimination um, will be punished to the full extent of the law. We're going to set the Department of Justice as, uh, or, or, or the local you know, attorneys general as the highest priority uh, of enforcement. You could, you could change things very fast. And so my argument to, to our folks is have the confidence in your own position. If you really believe your position, if you've earned the votes of the public, if it's within the, the constitutional uh, bounds, and it actually uh, advances a, a, a constitutional principle, um, do it, enforce it, uh, don't apologize for it, and certainly don't ask permission about it. Um, and, and I think that um, many of these things are hamstrung not necessarily by what our opponents are doing, but by our own lack of confidence or our own, um, our, our own really lack of, of, of self-belief or, 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 or even even more basic than that, our own revealed lack of belief in, in, in our own principles. I, I think sometimes these guys, you know, you talk to governors or legislators, they get, they get in there, they campaign on these ideas, and then they, they stop, they hesitate, they have fear. They don't, they don't govern on these ideas. Um, and, and to me, it's just a sign that they don't really believe them or they've They've let the, the, the left and the culture and, and the elite institutions um, fill them with just enough doubt that they cannot take action. And so I don't focus on what, what my opponents do. Um, I just like to focus on what we can do. And if we can bridge that confidence gap among our own people, that's going to do much more than any, you know, a- anything we can do to persuade um, our opponents. 
So uh, I'm going to defend my choice of language there because I chose it carefully. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I agree with basically everything that you said. Um, I would call it maybe the Asa Hutchinson style of governance, right? Um, and I've come to the same conclusion as you have, that a large part of the right simply either they don't believe what they're saying or they are not meant for politics mm-hmm. um, in, in the like capital P politics sense. You know, mm-hmm. you win elections in order to use political power. It's not to just to put your election on the shelf and polish it every day, right? Um, mm-hmm. Political capital is earned and then to be spent, not just to sit there. Um, I, I, I was referencing something, I think, different, which is what happens if we do exactly all the things that Chris Rufo says we should, which I agree with almost to every jot and tittle in terms of actually a serious agenda to use political power to hit institutionally, to hit the power of the left. What if, if the unelected bureaucracy simply says no? Right. Um, what if you have a, a direct contradiction between democratic power and, and and I can easily imagine that happening after yep. I could never have imagined that in 2015. But I can easily imagine it happening after the four years of the Trump administration. Right. Where yeah. you had generals who refused to tell the elected president when they were negotiating with Chinese generals. Right. Um, that's a pretty basic democratic norm that civilian control of the military decision-making process, right? Um, when you have the apparatus of the FBI spying first on a presidential candidate on transparently political grounds, right? And then now the prosecution of the leading opposition candidate in, in the 2024 election, I guess my question of let was very direct, which is, will they... Yeah. Will they allow democratic, a democratically backed political movement that guts all the things that they've won since 1968 happen? Yeah, I, I mean, there's, there's two answers to that question. Either the answer is yes, and in, in, in that case, the, the, the republic survives. You know, the principles of the republic uh, obtain. They, they continue. Uh, or, or the answer is no. And we get into some very scary, um, very frightening territory where the, the bounds of the Constitution have been, have been broken and, and all, all bets are off. You know, we enter into a bit of a, a state of nature again. Um, I, I, of course, hope that we, we do not go in that direction. Um, I hope that, um, that I, I, in that case, the, the bureaucracy will accommodate or relent um, but is that a guarantee? Um, no. And if it gets into that kind of state of nature style of politics, um, the, 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 the proper course of action for conservatives would be to fight tooth and nail to restore the constitutional bounds and to, um, and to really, um, you know, to, to really take the power away from the elements of the bureaucracy that would um, essentially subvert the, the Constitution in a, in a very real way, not a metaphorical way, but a very real way. And so um, this is, uh, you know, this is, these are big questions, and I, I hope that we don't have to answer them, um, but certainly it appears as if 
you know, many of, those, many, of, many of us on the right are starting to think about them. And just that sign is, is, is quite worrisome. Um, but, but I think that we need a, a kind of um, heroic figure that has the, um, the, the, the principles and the political skill um, to, to, to point out what's happening, you know, kind of push people back into their, into their corners and, and, and to restore the system that we have. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, kind of post-constitutional politics is not something that anyone should want. It gets um, very dangerous very quickly. Yeah, um, I, I completely agree. And that's why, I mean, um, paradoxically, because there is this impulse to say that if we moderate things, we'll be safer, quote unquote. Um, there's all this discourse about the polarization and radicalization of left and right and so on. Uh, I, I think par- like completely 180 degrees different. The most important thing is to radicalize the politicians being elected on the right in a way that actually, when I was calling you the white pill of America, like I think it's extremely yeah. important that the right get some institutional wins and restore, like you said, to send people back to their corners. I actually think that's the only way a non-tragic or radical outcome is avoided. Um, but let's 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 uh, go with the critique you thought I was making, which is uh, the critique that has been made of a lot of your solutions, right? Uh, that essentially, I think there's there's a reason article out recently about you know Chris Rufo <laughs> has become what he hates, and um, there's been a lot of of uh, critique that some of your solutions uh, essentially violate small L liberal norms, so not leftist norms, but classical liberal norms. Um, some of those those specific policies that um, some folks have been complaining about in the center right or the libertarian part of the right have been something things like banning critical race theory from public schools. Um, we will get to in a moment. I'm really excited to hear what is going on with New College and and um, with, the, with how to run a public university um, essentially on behalf of of the the true, the beautiful, and the good. Um, so what is your answer to your more centrist or libertarian critics when they say you are violating the spirit of 1776 when you wield political power or encourage uh, Republican politicians to wield political power in this way? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, I think it's just another another point in the old book of, 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 of why libertarians, um, uh, I, I mean, just just can't be taken seriously because. Let's break down this argument. So the argument is, Chris, you've supported and, and, and really spearheaded legislation to restrict critical race theory in K-12 schools. This is an outrage. It violates the principle of, of limited government. Um, well, let's look at that. You're saying the people, through their legislators, are saying that the government can no longer push this ideology on, on other people's kids in public school. You're actually limiting what the government can do. You're saying, hey, the government can no longer push racial scapegoating, you know, racial superiority theory, et cetera, in public schools. So the limited government argument is, is just facially wrong. You're limiting the government. You're limiting what they can do in the public schools. The other argument is that, well, this is a violation of freedom of speech of the First Amendment. Well, any look at the, at the jurisprudence would show um, that uh, the Garcetti versus Ceballos standard clearly states that public employees, in this case public school teachers, do not have uh, 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 unlimited First Amendment rights when they're doing their official duty, in, in, in the sense that when they're in the classroom, they are public employees that are designed to teach a, a, a certain curriculum, 
a certain style of pedagogy um, in, that is consonant with the local school boards and the state, uh, the state curriculum. And they don't have unlimited free speech rights because they're government employees, and this is the commission of their official duties. Much as if you work in the water department for the city, you can't use half your time to advocate for um, you know, reparations or for um, Puerto Rican independence or whatever it is that you want to do. You're, you have a job. You have to do your job first and foremost. So and, and, and that doesn't apply. And then the other thing is, well, what we really need is a free marketplace of ideas. That's the liberal ideal that is at stake here. And I say, well, wait a minute, libertarians. We're talking about public schools. Public schools are not a free marketplace of ideas. Public schools are, in fact, a government-run monopoly on education. It's, eight, it's 90% of the K-12 education market is a government monopoly. And so, by definition, these are not, uh, this is not a market mechanism. This is a monopoly or, at, at best, kind of a cartel. Um, and so those rules, again, do not apply. And they don't apply in addition because these are children. These aren't uh, adults that, that can, that can uh, engage in a robust exchange and a debate of ideas if you're teaching little Timmy, the kindergartner, that he's actually a girl and not telling his parents, um, you know, little Timmy is a kindergartner. He can't, he can't, doesn't have the, the ability to, to debate you about it. Um, and so, you know, line after line, where, where, where do we get these, these kind of three points of argument that are, that are totally incoherent? Um, even on libertarian grounds, they're defending the right of the public schools to abuse your kids, ideologically. That seems very unlibertarian. But what their, what their argument amounts to is that the people, through their elected le- legislators, have no right to regulate their government. That, that's really what it boils down to. And so for, for a libertarian to make this argument is so, I, I mean, just, it's just rock-bottom stupid. I mean, the, the, the amount, the kind of lack of, 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 you know, kind of electrical activity in the brain should be studied on this question because you get libertarians arguing against the right of the people to regulate their government. I mean, if that's not the definition of tyranny, um, uh, I, I, I don't know what is. And, and so I just, I don't know what motivates these people. I don't know if it's, if it's you know, I, I, I really have, have, I'm at a loss, frankly, I mean, even on their own principles, they can't defend their positions here. I think it may be, um, may, they don't like me. I don't know what it is. May, may, maybe you have some insight. I, I can't figure out what drives this line of argument for them. I honestly have come to the very non-intellectual conclusion uh, of, or explanation for this over the years, which is whatever people's cultural um, allegiances are, they tend to drive their politics. So in the case of libertarians, it however they need to. right in the case of libertarians it's their cultural knee-jerk sort of leftist view on um liberty or license i would say that yeah. drives that's like the tail wagging the dog to the extent that they they sort of work backwards from well the most important thing is a long list of license and and the culture that supports you know uh, legal pot, like, uh, you know, pornography everywhere. And, and like, I honestly think that a lot of libertarian thought proceeds backwards from that. Obviously there are exceptions to that. There are more serious people, but, um, I I have come to that anti-intellectual conclusion. Um, I wanted to ask you actually, uh, cause, cause Marxism is to return for a moment to the book. Marxism is 
Um, and the reason I was thinking about this is because libertarianism, at least at its best, and let's say, you know, the sort of Hayek, uh, Friedman era, really is is a spear aimed at essentially economic collectivism, communism, and and the, the like the actual Marxist communist um, countries during the Cold War, starting with the USSR, right? To the extent that they ended up in the in the right wing coalition, it was because they agreed on that communism is a bad idea, Marxism is a bad idea, right? They don't work economically. Um, is what we are facing now Marxist, or can it be called Marxist? Because you delineate both the intellectual connections and and showcase how all these different groups up to and including BLM, all call themselves Marxist. Um, but you also, the, the, the thinkers you were picking um, before, starting with Marcusa and, um, you know, Derek Bell, and, and some of them are communists, right? Angela Davis, a vowed communist. Um, but they all have separated themselves uh, in some way or another from what might be called old school Marxism, like economic Marxism. So is the, the ideology that currently rules us Marxist in any meaningful way anymore? And if so, what are what is to be learned from this successful fight against, I would say, against old Marxism, both to, like sort of abroad, right? Is there anything to be learned from that? Or is this a totally different beast, even though it has some intellectual parentage from Marxists? Yeah, it, it, it's a great question, and, and it's not an easy answer. But what I would say is that this is Marxism without Marx. Um, so all of these folks that, uh, that, that, that adopt the mantle of Marxism, adopt the kind of st- the stylistic elements of Marxism, like the leaders of BLM, are not really Marxists uh, in the sense that Marx would understand his own uh, political philosophy. And, and so well, what, well, what does that mean? I mean, it means that in 1968, um, Angela Davis's colleague, uh, Eldridge Cleaver, who was the Minister of Information for the Black Panther Party, a really um, a kind of alternately fascinating and, and horrifying uh, personality. Um, he was a, an old-school, uh, orthodox, Marxist-Leninist. And, and in the Black Panther newsletters that they were writing, their little academic journal, um, he was discussing the plans for how they would you know, take over the factories and how the, 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 the lumpen proletariat, you know, whom, whom actually Marx you know, didn't have, had little faith in. Um, but but you know, they had this idea of a Marxist revolutionary government. And certainly in the third world, they had the idea of Marxist uh, revolutionary classes taking control over the industrial production facilities. That was happening in Latin America and Africa, where you know, Paulo Freire, for example, worked. And so they actually believed that they could have a Marxist economy and political economy. Nobody believes that anymore. I mean, the Cold War put that idea to rest uh, um, with, with certainty. And so you have to ask the critical race theorists. The critical race theorists and the BLM activists uh, self-identify as Marxists. They say, we are Marxists, and we take these, these ideas, um, and, and we want you know, Marxism in, in, in that specific sense. But they don't really. I mean, can you imagine the BLM ladies, you know, running the production line at a Tesla factory? I mean, they're not going to do that. They don't want those jobs. And so they've lowered their ambitions to just the, 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 the knowledge economy or the kind of 
the, the, the means of knowledge production. So they want to have the plum jobs in academia, media, HR, training, um, you know, K through 12 school teaching. They want to change cultural attitudes in, in, in line with a neo-Marxist ideology. But they don't actually take very seriously the, besides the rhetoric that they have, you know, the kind of Elizabeth Warren, you know, rhetoric. Uh, um, I don't think that they really take seriously the idea of actually taking over the, the, the economy and taking over the industrial production and taking over agricultural production because they know deep down that they have zero competence um, and zero actual skills and capacity to achieve it. And so what they want to do really, and this is the end of the book, it kind of, we, we get to this really awful and cynical ending um, where they have control of the bureaucracy, they have control of the arts and culture, they have control of the education and transmission of values, they have control of the university departments, but it ultimately ends in a form of nihilism because they can't, there, there's nothing, there's no further that they can go. They don't have any vision beyond their own um, positions of security within the bureaucracy. And they end up just talking to each other in kind of ideological code. And so they become parasitic to the institutions, knowing that they cannot be productive within the institutions. So you have this really hollowing out. And, and that's the process that we're going through now, and it's, I mean, it's still very dangerous. You have institutions that are being hollowed out of their purpose, and, and, and these hollow institutions are trying to replace their purpose with ideology. And so you're going to get, uh, you know, perhaps a slow but steady degradation of all the institutional functions that we see. I, I really think the average person feels that, whether or not they connect it to these, I think, uh, to the ideology specifically. I mean, just there's this pervasive sense that after the pandemic, things just don't work, right? Mm-hmm. That airlines don't work, that nobody... Um, so I, I guess the question is, why, why can't it just be blame snowball, right? Well, I mean, why, why, what is preventing the, these, these uh, sort of ideologues or ideological compliance industry um, and actually, I'd like a, a number. What percentage of the U.S. economy or the U.S. GDP do you think is like actually just fake? Because um, uh. I think it's pretty high. Uh, but why can't they just blame it on the on the counter revolutionaries the same way that the actual communists uh, did for for eighty years? Why can't it be the fault of of evil racist white men that the planes are all delayed over and over again? <laughs> I, I mean, I mean, they're certainly going to try, right? They're certainly going to try. And then they have their own, you know, kind of more. So- we need more solution, you know, uh, you know. As the solutions deepen the problem, the only solution is more of the same solution. So, I mean, they're going to try that. Absolutely, they have no other trick in their in their in their, you know, box of tricks. But I just think that the American people are too reasonable. They're too rational. They're too skilled in, in whatever industries they're in. They're too competent and capable and practical-minded um, that eventually they are going to stop believing these. And I think in some ways they've already stopped believing them. It doesn't mean that we've, we've turned the tide or we've gotten rid of them from the bureaucracy or, or, or we've, we've you know, downsized. Um, but 
But it's going that direction, I think. I think that DEI is one example, and, and one of the examples, I, that was my big campaign this year. Um, we got DEI abolished, um, and, and DEI departments abolished, in every public university in Florida and Texas. Those jobs are now going to be uh, wound down and, and discarded. Um, and even Fortune 100 companies are starting to really quickly shed all of their DEI jobs, not all, but many of their DEI jobs. And even high-tech companies in California and, and companies like Netflix, which are very left-wing, you know, arts and entertainment, obviously, um, they're quietly shedding hundreds of their DEI jobs. Um, and so we are, we are I, I, I just have too much, you know, I live in a kind of middle-class, small town, people that have really normal jobs, um, you know, firefighters, um, you know, uh, uh, working at the Navy Yard, uh, nurses, teachers, you know, kind of sales and, and marketing for small or regional companies. And people are far too reasonable. And I think as the economy goes into a rough spot, they're going to be returned to reality. Um, and many of these jobs will be correctly identified as superfluous and then people will have the conditions that they need to start to slowly um, uh, return their, 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 their companies, their bureaucracies, their schools to a sense of clear priorities. And, and I'm already hearing this. I actually had lunch with a friend of mine who's a very successful uh, venture capitalist. He was a C-suite executive at one of the top, uh, you know, let's say very top technology firms. And, and he said, hey, look, you know, in, in VC, in small companies, it, in high-growth uh, startup environments where, where capital is, is competitive, all of my companies are starting to get really lean, really mean, really efficient, really effective, um, and, and the kind of honeymoon from that economic necessity is over. And that's going to start going up the chain to, to the larger and larger companies in the months ahead. So... I'm optimistic about Americans in general. I mean, I, I, I just, I feel like my, the, the people that I meet around the country um, are, are nice, they're polite, they'll put up with a lot, but, but when you cross the line, they're going to fix the problem. And so that, that's ultimately what gives me hope. It's not an idea or an ideology, it's just my sense of, of, of people and, 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 and the culture of people who live here. Well, it's surely true that uh, the American middle class is, is not the Russian peasantry. Um, I got let's, less let's faith in the Russian peasants, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's close out by putting more meat on, like what, what does the counter-revolution that you describe in the conclusion of this book look like? And even, or I don't know if even more importantly, but almost as importantly, um, how do we get leadership that actually signs on and executes that? Because I get most, I swing between optimism and pessimism. Like some days I agree entirely with Chris Rufo. Sometimes I read James Burnham and I'm like, eh, you know, um, but where I get most pessimistic is not looking at the left because I see a lot of the same cracks that you identify um, in this book. I see that uh, sort of institutional power that's simultaneously being more taken over by the left, but losing its power in society, that mm -hmm. rightly losing the trust of, of the American people. Um, but then I look at the Republican Party. <laughs> and 
I listen to what they still are advancing as the agenda uh, with, with some key exceptions. And I feel like despairing because it seems like there is no connection. When, when I hear somebody like Nikki Haley go on Fox yeah. and say uh, that she would welcome Disney and their jobs to South Carolina because mean old Florida or Governor Ron DeSantis uh, doesn't understand that this is an economic question rather than a question of institutional power. Um, I feel that I am transported back to 2012 and I lose hope. So how do we get a leadership that actually executes on a more muscular political posture and a competent agenda that does target institutional power? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. I think Nikki Haley is a perfect symbol. Nikki Haley, of course, not only is saying the kind of Reaganite, Thatcherite, all that matters is GDP, and therefore, um, you know, even if Disney is 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 putting, you know, you know, pushing non-binary uh, weirdos into your kids' uh, TV programming, um, the, their, their bottom line is the most important thing. Uh, you know, not only that, kind of the worst uh, strands of, of of kind of right-wing holdover thinking. But, but actually, she also opened her campaign by saying, I am a minority woman, uh, hear me roar, was her campaign pitch. She's like, really? We're going identi- to do intersectionality as our, as, our, as, our, as our pitch in 2023 for the Republican presidential nomination? Like, it, it's like she was designed to take the worst ideas from both sides and combine them into one campaign. Um, Luckily, though, what's Nikki Haley polling? Uh, what's her polling? 1%, 2%? Um, I, I, I think that the optimism and, and, and maybe quantifiable optimism is if you look at the top three candidates um, from, from the polls that I see and, and, and you know, give or take that the polls are, are, are skewed in their own ways each, but I think it's pretty much uh, Trump, DeSantis, and even Vivek in third um, that have, what, 90% of the Republican primary voters support and so all three of those people, they're very different, and I, I support uh, DeSantis. I, I, I'm not sure who you do, nor, nor does it really matter, but Trump understands America's cultural revolution, and, and his rhetoric is certainly leaning into these issues. DeSantis understands it better than anyone, and he's been governing on, this, on these issues very successfully. And even you know, Vivek, the kind of upstart, almost the third-party candidate uh, style of campaign, um, I mean, he understands these issues. I had a Twitter space with him uh, recently. And, I mean, he's even more radical in his proposed solutions than, 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 than anyone in some sense because he's trying to gain traction and, and has to do a bit more exciting policies to, to get his name out there. But the top three candidates are, are, are going to the public right now, and the public is saying, hey, we want the people who, who, are, who, who know what time it is. That's like a 90% majority across those three candidates. And so will that hold? Will the establishment you know, revive the, the, the fortunes of, of Asa Hutchinson? I, I doubt it, but you know, they'll, they'll, they'll try. But I think that the, the, the voters are, are with us. And the question that you're asking is, is an important one, but I think, I, I think there is a, an answer is you have to... Um, do two things. You have to create a new system of incentives for politicians. I love politicians. I know a lot of people, even think tank people, hate po- I love politicians. I, I find them fascinating. I find them admirable. Um, I, 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 think of, I think of my own work, in a sense, as 
in service to politicians. Um, uh, that, that is like really um, abhorrent to some people, but I, I mean, I, 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 I view it that way. I find myself as providing um, a kind of humble service to political leaders. I, 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 I think that these people have the most difficult job in, in, in the United States the most difficult job category in the United States. Um, it's a very difficult job. So, so what I always strive to do is solve problems for politicians, provide them in a very easy package everything that they need um, to, to be successful, and demonstrate that if they follow um, this idea that I'm, you know, say, proposing to them, and I give them clear kind of step-by-step uh, uh, help, um, and, and then I, I support and cheerlead and, and celebrate uh, victories, like state legislators, for example. Um, and, and then they see that it's popular. They see that it gets them, you know, donations and votes and, and, and other rewards, you know, media hits, whatever it is. Um, and, and, and if you can demonstrate the effectiveness of your ideas, the popularity of your ideas, the, the moral, you know, correctness of your ideas... And then more importantly than that, I mean, that's great, you should do that, but, but more importantly than that, you create a system of incentives. So even the most cynical politicians um, follow because they see success in the path that you're laying out. Um, I think that's what we have to do, and, and those of us on the, on the kind of media and policy sphere, um, you know, we have to remember, too, that most politicians follow our lead. I mean, they follow the lead of where the media and where the, the kind of um, intellectuals go. So um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, I see, and, and I see great politicians. Like, look, I tried to help with my CRT fight. I had tried to help the school choice movement, um, which I think is a, an essential solution. And I'll tell you who was the absolute warrior was the governor of Arizona, Doug Ducey. Governor Ducey is a Reaganite, optimistic, kind of business uh, conservative but, but, and you may say, oh, he's a bit more in that kind of older mold. But he took, he expended political capital. He fought for the policy. He did very shrewd negotiations with legislators on both sides. And he got universal school choice passed the first time in history, the first state to ever pass it. And, and, and he knew it was popular. He knew it was the right thing to do. He had great outside support. He had the narratives that he needed on CRT, on masks, on shutdowns. On, on race and, or on, on um, gender and sexuality. And so he was able, you, you know, all of us did our part, and then he was able to go in, and, and it was a winning issue for him. And so um, I'm, ultim- I'm ultimately optimistic about, about our politicians, um, but they, they, they simply, those recalcitrant ones, simply must be taught through success um, and, and, then, and then, you know, kind of punished, when, uh, you know, uh, when, when, they, when they deviate. Um, and then I think they'll, you know, follow along nicely over time. Well, and that's that's why uh, I think regardless of, of some of the inter-right debates about sort of the philosophy, and, and I'm sure this, this book um, will be a great contribution to that. Ultimately, uh, I am suspicious of anyone who doesn't uh, doesn't think that Chris Ruffo has been the perhaps the strongest value add to the right in the last you know, since you've really been working on, on our team for the last like four or five years. Um, so thank you so much, Chris, for, for coming I, back I, on. I appreciate that. And it's a lot of fun to talk to you. And I, I think you really understand what's, what's happening. And, and, you know, one last point of optimism, because that's, that's my role here, I guess, is, um, 
It's just, and, 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 you know, I'm talking, as I'm talking about politicians, I'm talking about the kind of rank and file, state legislators, kind of, uh, kind of you know, lower profile uh, state leaders. And, and, but we also have some real, you know, superstar politicians on our side. I mean, President Trump does not need guidance. Uh, Governor DeSantis does not need guidance. Uh, and, and a couple of others. So um, I, I just think we, we, we have to do a better job on the right of celebrating our people and boosting our people and, 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 and rewarding our people. And those great leaders that don't need any intellectual guidance, like a Governor DeSantis, um, th- th- but they, they do need our support and they do need our, 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 our work um, to really make them successful. And I just think that we have great people in our coalition, we have great people in our movement, uh, minus some of the, you know, some of, some of the, some of the st- more fringe strands. But um, we have a good story to tell. And the more that we tell it, I think the more we'll succeed. You can find more about that and Chris's work um, in America's Cultural Revolution, How the Radical Left Conquered Everything. I assume you can get that anywhere books are sold. I believe it's the, now the number one book, uh, selling, best-selling book in America. So that's another reason for optimism. Um, thanks so much, Chris Rufo, for coming back on High Noon. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.